Welcome to Poppin' Off, a special episode of Bubbles and Books, where we pop off with some of the most interesting, intelligent, wonderful, amazeballs people in our community. Hello. Oh my God. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Oh my God. I'm so sorry about this time thing. We're no, we're sorry. No, here's what's, here's what happened. Here's what happened. I'm going to, I'm going to com- completely be honest with you. Here's what happened. Okay. Okay. Daylight <laughs> savings obviously is like a terrifying time for all of us. Like, yes. <laughs> we, live, we live every day, like afraid that like the time has suddenly changed and we're going to miss everything. Right. Like, yeah. Right. Like, yes, I don't know. Yes. I, maybe yes. Like, right. It's just, the clock is just slipping under our feet. And, um, so I was like, and, and I had thought, and I was like, there I was, it was like approaching two o'clock my time. And I was like, I wonder if the time changed between <laughs> us scheduling this. Like, I don't know. And it changes in a different week in America and a different week here. Oh. There's like a whole, yes, there's a whole, it doesn't change globally for everyone at the same time. So there'll be like a period of a few weeks. I know the face you're making. So there's a period of a few weeks where like, nobody knows where anyone is and anyway we're in that period <laughs> we're in this like Bermuda triangle so I freaked out and I googled and here's the part where you guys are gonna hate me you might end this meeting I might be kicked out <laughs> you google Ohio I googled time in Ohio correct, <laughs> correct. Yeah, I you know what that's so funny because I just dropped my boys off at school and my son goes what's the deal with Ohio and I was like what are you talking about and he was like everyone says Iowa is Ohio <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just I, I'm from Chicago. Like I know, I know America. like it was just a weird brain fart. I know that Ames, Iowa. I know what it is. Like well, I it was to be okay if you did it. Like we would not blame you. <laughs> I mean, it was just the craziest thing. And then when I realized it, I was like, oh my god, how am I gonna explain to these women? <laughs> it's really great. So well, at least you were on top of it because I was like. Oh shit. I never even would have thought about that. Not at all. Have, so, but I shouldn't have, I should have just let everything happen instead of <laughs> like having a, a breakdown for no reason. And then having everyone up. Um, we're here. We're here. Yeah, we're, we're, here. Here. we're here. Hello. It's so nice <laughs> to talk to you. It is really cool. It's like having watched someone, I watch you on social media kind of obsessively. <laughs> and so like, it's seeing a character out of like a movie come to life or something. I listen to your podcast all the time. So I'm the one that just like stepped into the TV. Yeah. We're sorry. This is, for me. this is actually really helpful because I think your podcast should be a TV show because your voices are so similar that in when I listen. Really? To it, um, yeah, 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 yeah. When I listen to it, I just, I don't see individuals. I just have like a multi-headed like Gorgon of, of like fun and chat and whatever. We should do like video snippet promotion of the podcast that someone can like watch like a segment. Yes. But I don't think I could deal with someone being able to watch me for like the shit we talk about. (laughs) It would would make you feel pressure to be very significant. Well, Well, you're significant to me. Okay. You're significant to us. I bought a really fancy mic to do like podcast interviews with and stuff when the book came out and I literally just never figured out how to use it. So anyway. (laughs) Yeah, we just we we just we just say sure, buy new equipment and she figures it out. Please excuse me slurping a hot tea also. Well, this is the last of my apologies. Please excuse me slurping a hot tea. I'm unwell. Well, we're gonna pop bubbles and it's 8 a.m. here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I wish I could join you. Oh, I love a bubble. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) 
Amanda um, was going to try and figure out how to send you bubbles to France. <laughs> and <laughs> then I was like, that's the thing. dumbest thing ever because you live in the land of champagne. And so that's like, like me sending you corn. <laughs> like that's <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Gift exchange. Yeah. I should send you bubbles. Is exactly. <laughs> I can't even imagine. You live a good life. Ellen, do you want me to get our podcast started? Yeah. I won't alienate all of your listeners by thinking they're in Ohio. <laughs> you know what? Anyone in Iowa who hears that will will feel that. They will know that. Know. We've all we've all or we also get confused with Idaho. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> but you know what? Iowa like really sucks right now, so we deserve it. Yeah. Well, you can do a lot more. We are <laughs> not for good things. No. no. Um I was just watching the morning show episode when the reporter is sent to Iowa for the caucuses and they don't get the results. And I was just like, oh my God, it's just been a shit show since then. So yeah, you have this one moment when everyone wants to, everyone wants to suck up to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think we're done, right? The Democrats are done. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. They're done with us. And who cares about the other party? Yeah. We don't want to know about that. Okay. It is a very big day here on Bubbles and Books. <laughs> we are popping <laughs> off with Jen. I got to start again. I'm like so nervous. Okay. Because you called me John. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. We're going to talk about John. With Jen. With Jen. Jen Langbein. <laughs> It it was a big day here at Bubbles and Books. We're popping off with Julia Langbein, author of our favorite book of the year, American Mermaid. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Oh my gosh, you guys, I just, for all you listening people, I just touched my hand to my heart. I'm so grateful. That is so kind. You've been like such a, so such American Mermaid enthusiast and I felt it all the way over here in France. Oh, we love it. We're obsessed with it. We've been obsessed with it since before it came out. We were like, oh my God, this is the funniest shit we've ever read. <laughs> it brought us great yeah, delight. It, you know. Yeah, it brought us great <laughs> delight. And we tell everyone about it, both in the store and bookstores across the country, because we want everyone to sell a million copies because we need a million more books by you. Oh, yeah. There's no, I just finished one. <laughs> we can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, we, we'll get that. <laughs> we need to know as much as possible. But, um, we had a fun little start to our podcast, figuring out who was in what time zone during daylight savings time. Um, but we have now confirmed it's 8 a.m. in Ames. We are popping champagne, <laughs> staying on brand. Um, <laughs> we're not having any OJ, even though it's, it's mimosa time. It's mimosa time. It's mimosa time. Um, Julia, you are joining us from France. Where yeah. in France are you? I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a suburb of Paris. I'm not in Paris proper. Um, I'm in, but the burbs, you know, it's not, it's not the ice storm, you know, it's not like what you think of with American burbs. It's like, it's a cute little village kind of, it's like the beginning of beauty and the beast. When I walk around, Bonjour, Madame. (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, How did you end up in France? Um, so I've actually been living outside the U.S. now for 10 years, I realized recently, I think. Yeah. Um, I met my would-be husband at a wedding in South Africa when I was um, in like 2013. 
and then shortly just moved to London because um, I was still in graduate school so I could faff around and moved to London and you know married him and then got a job in the UK then we moved to Ireland and then we're here kind of sort of for my husband's job but when I used to be um, an academic I was a French specialist I was a Ooh. specialist in 19th century <clears throat> French art uh, so none of which is in American Mermaid. Yeah, but, I was going to um, say, this is like, this is a leap. Yeah, you're welcome. I didn't put any like <laughs> Renoir in there for you. Um, kept I it wouldn't on. have understood the reference. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand that stuff anymore. My brain is rotted. Um, in a good way, in like a healthy wine way, you know? Yeah, yeah we're totally there. Um, If you've listened to this podcast before, listeners, you already know all about American Mermaid. We drop references about every other podcast. But for new listeners, we want to clue them in. Not only was American Mermaid one of the books we most enjoyed reading, it's one of the books we most enjoy describing to customers. One of our booksellers, Mariah, has trademarked this thing she calls, let me paint you a word picture. So Ellen, if a customer was looking at the cover of American Mermaid, what is the word picture you would paint for them? Um, she just picture. held up a beautiful pink and pink and purple. Yes, like, I love this cover. cover. I, yeah, there's a the we do is coming out in March, and it's a very different look. I know we do love the new cover too. Yes, mm. yeah, we've had we've had long conversations about that cover mm. with our. As I'm good sure things. you have all all good things. Okay. Um, Okay, here's here's a word picture. Picture this. There is a high school English teacher who, in her free time, because she's a poor high school English teacher, writes a novel called American Mermaid that gets like social media popular and it gets optioned by a couple Hollywood bros. She goes out to Hollywood to write the movie. That's half of the book. The other half of the book is excerpts of her book, American Mermaid. Baby mermaid washes up shore, is discovered by the barren wife of an evil scientist. And then what do I say next, Amanda? Um, I love how her time was like Keith Morrison in 48 hours. Picture picture this. this. Here we are. Yeah. It's like she grows up believing that she's wheelchair bound. She cannot walk, but she doesn't know that the doctor, that her evil scientist father is forced to do the surgery because of things related to nuclear bombs that we won't get into, um, performed the surgery unbeknownst to anyone that if she spent enough time in the water, her legs would fuse back into her natural tail. And when she's 20, in her 20s, she hates her life. So she rolls in her wheelchair into the Boston Harbor. And what do you think happens? She becomes a she realizes who she was. This she realizes who she was, and her dad is up to some bad shit mm-hmm. that involves using mermaids to power lasers to accelerate <laughs> climate change. Yes. Now, as you point out, this is, I'm interrupting your synopsis, which is ridiculous, but <laughs> as you point out, this is only half the book because it's not actually like a full on like Marvel strap yourself into your roller coaster. Yeah. The other half is the, you know, the story of her in LA. Yes. These hilarious studio conversations. And it's a very dialogue heavy, comedy heavy. Yes. um, So she is in Hollywood and she is working with these bros and they keep wanting to change Sylvia, her mermaid into this like 
younger, sexier, like superhero type of character, which is not what she is. Um, And over time, and Penelope sort of lets it happen, even though she knows it's all fucked up and weird stuff starts happening. And she's like, is this mermaid for real? Like, is she like exacting revenge on all of us for screwing up her story? So it's like a feminist, it's a feminist story. Yeah. 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 It's about, I think it's about identity. Like I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, something, yeah. When you write a book, you don't write it thinking about how it will be like marketed or to whom it will be sold, you know, like it's really funny. Um, and I just wrote this story just like, and also I never, I wasn't an English major. I did not do an MFA. I was not a big reader of contemporary fiction. (laughs) Um, really, it's really weird. Like I literally came out of nowhere. Well, and, and, it um, feels like it like, as a reader in a good way. That's what a lot of people said, like that there's a kind of singularity to the voice because it's not nourished on like convention or whatever. <laughs> um, but not to say there's not a lot of really great contemporary fiction, but it just, you know, um, I wasn't the kind of person that gobbled up all the newest fiction mm-hmm. or whatever, or knew about trends in fiction or whatever. Anyway, um, so yeah, I just write this book. And a lot of my early readers were good friends of mine who were men, you know, and I'd send the book to them. And they would love it. And so, and then when it was, when it came out and I like, like Double Day did a wonderful job, like marketing it and everything, but it's funny how the world of fiction is so gendered and like, I, it, yeah. you know, it was so strange how it, it definitely is a feminist book, but it's also like very much a book about identity and there are male characters mm-hmm. in there who are carved up and misunderstood mm-hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's for sure about, about the way that like, um, when you hit them, actually the book is about how, when you hit a marketplace, in a way, that marketplace always wants to break you down into pieces you that are smaller than the sum of your parts. Yeah. Yeah. That's a yeah. that's a great way of describing it. And it's fun because when you when you describe this book to people, they're like, what? <laughs> You're like, no, trust me, this is so See, smart. It will blow your mind. <laughs> that's why, okay, of all the columns of support that a book can have, um, you know, like traditional media, um, uh, celebrity book clubs, whatever. Uh, independent bookstores. American Mermaid had so much support from independent bookstores. And I think one, and I'm so grateful for it. And like, literally, thank you so much. And thank like, thank you to all the bookstores and like the Indie Next list and all of that. Um, but a book like American Mermaid, I think will have a hard time finding readers without you because it doesn't fit in neatly into a genre category. Again, something I hadn't thought about, but like, yeah, it doesn't say like, oh, you're a romance reader, read this, or like you're a thriller reader, read this. It's just its own experience, kind of. And you need like a, a midwife in a way, kind of, to kind of say, right? To <laughs> yes. say to people like, ah, hello, you don't know what this is, but trust me, it's good. And um, and I think that you you guys and your colleagues in the independent book world have like been just like, yeah, hugely important to that book, finding its finding its friends. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the best thing about indie bookstores. It's like you know, we actually read the books. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I think and, I think you matter and, especially to books that are like a little bit of a weird in a weirdo category, you know, and need someone yep. to kind of ex- like you know put it in people's hands and get that ball rolling. Yeah, because you know, with American Mermaid, it's like it's so funny. I laughed, I laughed so much when I read this book. I was like dying, and I was like, Amanda, you read this book, and so she started reading it, and she was like in my living room reading it, and she started dying, and I was like, what part are you at? I couldn't even know what part she was dying at. Um, literally why I write that's literally why I write is stories oh my like god literally all I want and the whole yeah. thing is set up there may be like sentimental parts of the book and there may be action <clears> scenes <throat> and maybe but all of that is set up so that the foil of the seriousness or the action or whatever 
is like a backboard for the comedy to hit off of. Like I'm just yes. trying to figure out how to write the funniest, yes. meaningful, I, significant. And, but funny. you know, sometimes people think humor is not like an elevated form, right? If I say, well, this book's hilarious, they might think it's not a serious work of fiction or it's not saying anything important, but that's like not true at all. Dude, you just backed up. You just backed up into Julia Langbine rant zone. And like, <laughs> yes, anyway, go. Want to get out of here. I don't know. Rant. But Amanda, yeah. bring me my champagne. I know. Yes, I know. Exactly. <laughs> Let's have a boozy, angry morning. I love this. Oh my God. Let's drink champagne and tea and rage. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Thank um, you. I actually, it's like 3.15. I could be hitting that, but I'm on so much cold medication that it could go. In a yeah, that could, that could go, that yeah, could, could go, go awry. Could catatonic. Um, but yeah, like when I was younger, I loved like evil and wah. Or, you know, I loved books that like were funny, but also were so good. Like the language was really good, but the comedy would like explode you into realizations, into depth and, you know. Yeah. I mean, vile bodies is, 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 is hilarious. It's, uh, it's about war, you know, like there, there's so much, um, anyway, so I would go to like Barnes and Noble back in the day, you know, or Weldon books hollered. Yeah. Weldon books. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> and, um, and I would find, try to find like a humor section and the humor section would be like 10 things I learned from my cat or, you know, like, yeah. which there's a place for that. But, and then again, recently, very recently, when I was looking to find an agent, when I had written American Mermaid and I wanted to publish it, I was looking for an agent. And people said the best way to do that is to read books that you think are like your book and see who reps them. <laughs> so, so I was like Googling like funny fiction, you know, and it led me to the worst places. Here's the last part of this rant. One of my favorite books that I've literally ever encountered, um, like, holy God, it made my summer was Big Swiss. Yeah, yeah she loves that. <laughs> Oh God, it just did everything for me. It was so good. Um, it's funny, not just in the funny parts, but the connective tissue, like the yeah. whole book is funny. The first words and the last, like, I, and then I went back and read everything she's ever written and it's all good. Anyway, that book was not marketed to anyone as funny. That was never described as funny. Cause I wonder why maybe people thought that people wouldn't read it. That book is fucking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but it is so right? funny. It but it's also primarily like... hilarious. But it's also doing other things. It's about trauma. It's about um, connection. It's also about kind of how we categorize people. And it's, you know, it's all about all kinds of profound and wonderful and interesting things and ideas. But it is so funny. And the fact that like, it took me a really while, a long time to get around. Some, my, literally one of my best friends had to be like, Julia, this book was written for you. Have you read it? And I was like, no. It's being marketed as like a sex therapy book. Like that's not my blog, you know? And then that, but it's, but it's so funny. So anyway, that's, that's my thing is like comedy is one of those things that flies under the radar in literature. And I think people are almost afraid to market a book as funny because then people will think it's not good or real or significant. Yeah. And, and then a lot of stuff that's not funny. It has like one whimsical line and the book jacket is like, no, oh, this comic tale. And like, <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Oh, it's really, really blows my mind. Anyway, I, there, that's something that's off. I think a book like yours and a book like Big Swiss leave you, it, they leave me with a horrible book hangover. After I read your book, I was like, shit nothing <laughs> nothing is going to give me what this book gave me people are always looking for comps for something they've read 
there isn't. Yeah. You can't comp American. Okay. I have, I had a hard time. I had such a hard time doing it too. And I had to like market myself, you know, they want to know, how are you going to, how are you going to sell your book? Who, what reader would like this? I thought, uh, on your author page, um, you did a great job. You had two bits to describe this book. You said, if you like to laugh while thinking, And also if you enjoy getting at serious truth, but also being a bit ridiculous, this is totally how I describe your book. It's ridiculous. We call it wackadoodle. And (laughs) And there's room for that. And there's room for that. And you know what? We're not going to get into this, this, but like I did write, you know, I did a PhD and I wrote an academic book, you know, um, published with Bloomsbury about 19th century art. And actually the thesis of that book is that these like comic wackadoodle people in the 19th century were the ones that understood modernist painting like better than anyone like I I am so invested in the like in the in the fetal twins which are like comedy and intellectuality and like you know and profundity and like I I just I'm gonna I'm gonna be working that forever and yeah and that's that's and and then I was like I'm really grateful it's hard to be funny Like yeah. you have to be smart to be funny. How many of us have seen like a stand-up comic bomb? It's hard to be. It's hard to be funny. Like I've been on both sides of that, but yeah. <laughs> um, so but like, uh, you know, like okay. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was like, okay, my next book, no. I'm gonna spare myself. I'm gonna do something like so straightforward. I'm just gonna like get in to a little genre mold. And I'm gonna stay there. And did <laughs> no. I do that? No, don't like, do that. It's insane. It's bonkers. <laughs> I can't wait. Um. <laughs> It, for those who don't know, you have done comedy. You performed in New York. Um, in addition, I like how you describe um, on your author page that you've been many Julias um, yeah. and they're very like not connected, but they are if you read what you've written. So you've been a comic, you've been a PhD candidate, an academic, you, an and, academic. Yeah. you've been an author, you are a mom. Um, when you read your work, it does feel, and you've said as much, everything is just a setup to make people laugh, but you ended up creating a super meaningful story wrapped around all those bits. But I was curious, it reads like the best sketch comedy I've ever watched, like the the hits of SNL, not the bombs. Um, and so I wondered, did you just have like a list of bits that you wanted to throw in there? Because there were moments where uh, Penelope goes to Pink Taco. And, <laughs> That's my, been my favorite part of the book. <laughs> and, you know, it's like a Volvo reference and she's eating, she's eating Pink Taco. And then yeah. Rainy and Murphy are talking about Sersha Ronan's name and they throw out all the different ways we try and pronounce it, like Sersha, yeah. Searcy. Blah blah blah. Yeah. 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 Did you have like something in did you have these things in mind that you wanted to throw in there at some point? Or did just come organically as you're shaping the narrative of what happens to Penelope um in the book? So that's been like the most incredible thing about like just when I started writing this book, like discovering sort of discovering that I could write or something like that. I mean, I would like I would I could write as an academic and I'd done nonfiction magazine writing and things like that. But, you know, like I said, I didn't really have a history of fiction at all. In fact, I, I did do the undergrad writing program um, in college, but I focused on playwriting. Um, like I was always more interested in dialogue. Um, and I thought the fiction people were like so self-serious and I like couldn't, I didn't want to hang around them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I just also thought everything they were writing was like veiled stuff about who they were banging. Like I was just like, Ugh. Um, you know, I don't know, it just, it just wasn't my world. Um, but, but, but yeah, when I started writing fiction, I discovered like that it's just like sketch comedy. It is actually just like improv in the sense that you can't over plan. You have to like start out and there are principles and you have to have rigor and there has to be internal coherence. But like, if you just start and then, um, I don't know, and, and you, you play both sides of the, you play, you know, every character in the scene, but you kind of stick to the rules of improv, you know, like just saying yes. And like keeping your world intact and whatever, like it'll build itself and you'll find things. You'll just find hilarious things. Just find these games and bang the hell out of the game as they, as they say. Um, but also sometimes like I am like, I, I can't help it. Like if you see me walking around my village, like I, I'm always just like laughing to myself. Like I, it was something I was ashamed of for a long time. Like I thought that maybe I just wasn't a serious person. And like, I remember when I went into my PhD defense, my dad said, Julia, try to have some gravitas. And I think that's like, I put that in the book somewhere actually. Like her dad says to her, like, get some gravitas. And I feel like my whole life I've been like, I have no gravitas. Like I got to fake some gravitas. Thank God. Yeah. But like, you know, I just, it's, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Like that's just who I am. Yeah. Like I just always am like born to see the gap between like things and like, I don't know, between what's there and what could be there or like, yeah. No, no, just I like your book defies genre. There isn't necessarily a place for a person who thinks and lives as you do to land unless people can appreciate it. It's completely, in fact, like a lot of times I've just been felt like a, like a total jabroni, just like a jackass. <laughs> like, it's weird. It's weird because then I went into the most serious thing in the world, which is academia. Yeah. You know, um, I literally, and you probably saw this on my, or maybe I erased this from my author profile. I used to have an old one, but like, <laughs> I, about how, like I used to like, you know, like actually walk around Oxford. I was a research fellow there in a black gown. And sit at like a Harry Potter style candlelit high table with like the world. <laughs> and actually, in my head, I was just like, take notes on this, take notes on this. <laughs> this is crazy. And then I got too drunk and didn't take the notes, but uh, it's a shame. Um, but I'm like, yeah, it's just there's always been a bit of a conflict between like the interests that I have, which take me into deep things. Like, I loved doing PhD research and sitting around in French archives and reading 100 years of French newspapers and doing all of this stuff. Um, and then also just and having this voice in the back of my mind, that's like saying ridiculous stuff. But now I know to like, go put it in my phone or whatever, when I hear something like that and save it for later and, and whatever. Now I know which for my people need to follow you on Instagram because you share those odd notes. Like Sometimes you'll screenshot them. And we were, like, I wonder where this is going. We were working at preschool book fair yesterday and looking at your Instagram. <laughs> Don't worry. That's hilarious. Yeah. There was one that was like, um, what was it like tiny and scary, like a tarantula's dick or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> tiny that but frightening. It is scary. Yeah. If as soon as I know a note isn't going to make it into the book, I'll, I'll dump it over on the old gram. But yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see them pop up. Um, yeah, I think your book is like really quite subversive. Like it, because it, it, it is like, there's, you could have so much serious conversation around this book, right? And people should. Yeah. It's like, it's, uh, it's approachable and it's so funny, but it's, we tell people all the time, like, don't be fooled by the humor mm. and by the sort of cover treatment of it, because this is actually a really serious book. It, you will roll on the floor laughing for half of it, 
but it's going to make, it's going to, it has such true observations, especially about what it means to be like a, a woman coming into her own. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The and, kind of ways that you're limited that people tell you, you can only be this, you know, or that think, you should be satisfied with this. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This idea that like, there's this, there's like a body of water, this like infinite thing. And all you have to do is come into contact with it. And mm-hmm. you'll realize your powers is like, so such a seductive idea. I still, I, you know, that book is behind me. And I still think about that sometimes this like kind of metaphor of like, just a way of being that's free and, you know, untrammeled by like kind of ideas of femininity. And certainly for me, ideas of like motherhood and what it means to be a mom and like how that's such a safe and predictable thing. And it's like, guess what? I'm a lot of things that don't fit that, you know? Right. And that world that exists underwater is unknown to like it it gets to exist without observation and with such power and freedom and i love it i also there are so many things we love about this book um i love that (laughs) the way mermaids reproduce is by killing sailors and jerking them off yeah yeah well in the reverse order (laughs) jerk them off kill them Um, and that this is kind of like how the cover is blown. These sailors like are disappearing and that's how your mermaid's father clues into where the mermaids live. And I just, I, and also that the mermaids all have dudes names, like I'm Kevin, I'm Ralph, because that's who they jerked off to get the sperm. Yeah, it's it's they're, they're honoring the uh, sailors that they had to sacrifice um, to get their seed. Yeah, it's funny when I first um, was writing that those scenes, the mermaids were named like Pearl and like Silver or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, what everyone mermaids, mermaids are, are everywhere. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it, it's, this is like what's so beautiful about like what I was just describing this whole kind of improv thing where if you actually play it out, yeah. if you actually it's actually if you treat it like a logical world, why would they name themselves Pearl? Like, we don't no. know, like, right. we don't all name ourselves like mountain and tree. Like, you know, you don't, I don't know, like they would name them. There's, there's a logic to the fact that they would be named after like to the, the, the yeah. men who allowed them to be reproduced. Yeah. Whatever. So, yeah I love it. Yeah. Um, we also really love the scene at the sushi restaurant when yeah. the fish is laid out on the table and they're looking for the little fish divot vagina yeah did you yeah. do fish anatomy research for this book <laughs> we yeah, have to hilarious. know well it's a great question it's one no one's asked so far uh, <laughs> I, I am half Finnish my mother is born and raised in Finland to add to the complications <laughs> of this insane person you're talking to um so I spent every summer of my life in Finland I still do and oh, cool. Yes, it's an amazing place and a crazy culture. And I think actually a lot of the stuff from American Mermaid, like my various er, very earliest sketches of for American Mermaid kind of had to had the mermaid coming from Finland. Like there was something yeah. about being between those two cultures, one of which is all about nature and the natural world and is also so much about like privacy and the unknowability of people. Like Finnish culture is like so, so different when it comes to those things um, than American culture. Um and so anyway, growing up between those worlds or whatever. Um, but in Finland, I caught and gutted hundreds and hundreds of fish. So I do that scene 
where the sushi chef describes, you know, inserting the knife, cutting it open, the way the guts come out looking like they're kind of encased in plastic and the way that he was surprised to find roe. I mean, that's something that used to happen in my childhood all the time. I'd cut open a pike and my mom would say, oh, look at that. You've got roe, um, you know, or whatever. So yeah, I know a lot about dead fish. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. I feel so privileged to know this backstory of our favorite author. That's just uh, never come up actually the finish thing. Yeah. Well, that, it's one of the that funniest scene, parts of the book. That scene, I was like dying and I was like oh my god listen to this and I was like reading it to my husband he's like what are you reading I was like it's so funny (laughs) that's why I know I've made it is when people are hitting people in bed and reading it to their partner yeah no I I did and actually in preparation for this I was like kind of doing like a quick reread through the book and I'm like still dying (laughs) good thank you it stands up it does Um, when it mm -hmm. go ahead I was going to say one of the things that kind of resonated with me was Penelope's, like the way you write about teaching. Have you ever taught? Well, yeah, because I was, I mean, I taught yeah, you did I an acad- a yeah. program. Yes, okay, yeah. I was teaching college students. Um, yeah. And I briefly taught, I did like SAT tutoring in high school in New York, um, but that was a very short experience. Okay. Um, but yeah, I've taught, so I taught at like University of Chicago in Oxford, not at public high schools, but you can extrapolate. You capture it really well. I was a high school English teacher. Oh and, yeah, and I thought you wrote it so well. Uh, there's like this part where you're, she's having a discussion with kids and they can't like pronounce any of the characters' names, yes. right? But they can yeah. get to like the crux of the story, um, but they can't do anything that is like surface level. And also <laughs> they can't interact together very well. Uh, and I, I felt like you captured that so well, sort of like the highs of teaching, like why yes. people stay there and why they love it, but also like the drudgery of it, yes. the relationship with Derek, like having that, like every teacher has another teacher that they're like, okay, we're mm-hmm. in this together. Um, but also like, you know, the reason that Penelope decides to move to Hollywood and give up teaching is because she has um, a likelihood of developing breast cancer in her family. And she needs, she wants to get a double mastectomy preemptively and she cannot afford that as a teacher. Um, And, you know, but she's doing like, she's working overtime all the time, you know, drinking wine and writing these horrible essays. (laughs) I was like, you know, when I got, pregnant with my first child it was like I would break even after daycare yeah like no I think you know people make the choices they make including me being in Europe by the way um, because of fear about the cost of really basic things like healthcare and childcare in the U.S. and like um you know I I did have a um some family you know a, a family tragedy or whatever and thought about having to move back to the U.S. and I was just like I can't cut it there. I don't know how to like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to make ends meet there. Um, so yeah, there's more of a safety net here and that, that has like been part of our decision-making for sure. But like going back to teaching, like, I mean, I, I miss it so much. And I think people talk so negatively about academia these days. And, um, you know, there's so many problems going on in the world of high school, like, you know, you know, about banned books and mm-hmm. the politicization of school <clears throat> curriculums. And it's, like, I just think that space of that shelter to talk about ideas is so fleeting and so beautiful. And actually the yeah. way that people make themselves vulnerable in that <laughs> space without even really knowing it, just, you know, some like the way some like 
doofus seeming athlete, like, you know, will will make a comment about Edith Wharton, but he he's connected to it. And he's, yep. he's more than he knows. And he's more than his friends know, you know? And, um, and like, yeah, there was just so much of that in my experience of graduate school, just people surprising you and being surprisingly deep and surprisingly open. And like, I loved it and I, I miss it so much. And I hope that like, maybe I'll get back into teaching as a right, you know, right. Teaching writing or something like that. Cause at this point, I think I'm, I'm out of the game when it comes to art history, but <laughs> never know. It's just but it is, world. you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. But it, is. it is like, it's a hard job and there's so much like drudgery to it. And you, especially when you're dealing with like teenagers, there's so much like, what the fuck happening, yeah, totally. but there are those beautiful moments when they connect to something or they connect with you and it's like, it makes it all worth it. And I felt oh like you, that was in this book, like you got it. I used to teach like, you know, 19th century art, for example, at the university of Chicago. And um, so I, a lot of the things, pictures I was putting up on screen were pictures of just like straight up prostitutes and stuff. And I remember during one of those classes, like I just looked at the front row and there were these two boys who had curled into each other and like kind of were sleeping like doves under a bridge, just like one of their necks into the other one's head, you know, and they were so sweetly asleep. And I was just like, there's nothing that I ever could have done to keep you awake. Like, um, you're just so, you're like still kind of an adolescent and your body's growing and you're learning so much. And you know what, if what you need to do here is sleep, I'm not going to yell at you. Like they were so sweet. The fact of like two, like guy friends, you know, just like kind of singing. So, so adorable. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, teaching, yeah there, it, it is like a really beautiful space for like sides of humanity that you don't see elsewhere. Um, one of the themes that really resonated for me, and I don't want to extrapolate or assume anything, but I saw this layered um, effect between Sylvia's story and Penelope's that there were several... Um, themes that carried through both of them, um, one of which was a dad that they loved, but also pushed away from, and also this idea around sexuality, and how much do we need to turn over to a sexual drive and how how that can almost drain what you can take in the world take from the world and so my backstory is I have a dad I love who's like an evil monster just like Sylvia's dad um and Penelope's dad he's like a conspiracy theory believing conservative who's thinks his money by love buys love and so I just was blown away by this theme carried through the book. And I'm curious about whether that was an intentional repetition in both of their lives, Sylvia and Penelope, and where did that inspiration come from? Okay, so I'm going to take the two things uh, separately, the dad okay. thing and the sex drive thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair. Fair. You should, as you should. <laughs> if you don't mind, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely, uh, you know, well, there's like our individual dads and then there's like the patriarchy. Yes. You know, yes. Right? And, one in the um, same, basically. 
And in France, actually, I've been following this uh, feminist podcast that talks about the whole idea in France of the bon père de famille, the the good fa- the good family dad, which is like this really sinister kind of um, stereotype. Um, anyway, there's like so I think every culture kind of grapples with these issues of like the dad, um, and um, like you know, my dad is a conservative. He's like a Reagan Republican. Yeah. Um, he's also a, he's a law professor and he is someone who I think just, it's funny because our brains are very similar in some ways. Like he's an mm-hmm. academic, like he synthesizes and reads huge amounts of information as, as do I, he and I are both like master concentrators. You know, there's a lot of things I got from him, but ideologically we're miles apart on everything. And, um, and it's not even just like about, you know, politics, um, or whatever. It's like the idea that everything, um, that can be known and sh- everything that should be known can be known through like documents and rational analysis. Yeah. And yeah. there's right. There's this um, absolutely no time for anything involving like critical theory uh, for, you know, um, anything that challenges, I mean, conservative ideals in terms of like, you know, literally like stasis and hierarchy. Um, right. And, and so that's, that's a way, that's a way to be. Um, but it, growing up, I think even before I realized what my kind of like ideology, what my my sort of what kinds of politics I was drawn to, there was like a fundamental thing about personhood that that I felt uncomfortable with. You know that um, the ways that I saw the world and things that I felt important weren't didn't count, weren't valorized, were even even my sense of humor. I was often told not to be garrulous, not to be, you know, um, when I did, I think my dad was absolutely humiliated that I was doing comedy. So, so, so embarrassed. Um, so like, and look, that that's, that's okay. Like he's, you know, um, he's doing fine and I'm doing fine. And I think we have a good relationship, but it's definitely like these kinds of things produce an irritation, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what it is. It's Mm -hmm. an irritation. And, you know, a lot of literature, I think comes out of these irritations that we can't work out anywhere else. And it's so funny. Like the other day, this mom at the school pissed me off and I came home and wrote a song about it. Like, I just think that's how it is. I want to hear it. What's the song? It's called Mom Jerk. It's really funny. Um, <laughs> it's in my garage band. I don't know if it'll ever make it out. Oh, but, um, oh no, no, it's not called Mom Jerk. It's called Mom Dick. Which yes. Yes. Better, better rhyming possibilities. Um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, of course, like I work these things out and like, you know, I don't think anybody cares about, you know, my daddy's shoes, but I think that what I found from talking to a lot of people and from just being a person in the world is that as you describe, like they're so shared and these things are like generational and cultural and the way that our dads were like raised, um, not to do a, emotional labor and like Mm-mm. not to have to right? like, and Oh my God, continue. don't look behind the curtains. What will happen? Yes, exactly. And like now that they're aging, we're seeing this, this generation of boomers, like the men who were not equipped um, to be vulnerable, right? It's going to be especially difficult for them. Like my last thing that I did as an academic was work on a book about aging and and like, yeah, I thought a lot about it. And yeah, these, um, I think it's gonna be really tough for these um, boomer dads to like, um, to learn how to be dependent yeah, to go into this world of irrationality to kind of grapple with what it means to have dementia or to right like to I basically mean, not have the power anymore. You exactly, know? exactly, exactly. Not to be authoritative. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, yeah, totally. I can't, you really did get this book. I really feel like so. so <laughs> it was so it. deep. Um, um, but I also really loved that exploration of, you know, Sylvia had power because she didn't give a shit about sex. Like her asexuality freed her to like to not be beholden to male desire gave her this whole power that even her evil scientist dad realized these mermaids are the future of my water flooded world and I need them. Um, and, and then you contrast that with Penelope's world in which the studio bros are saying she needs sex. She needs sex. Yeah. She needs to want it and she needs to fix it and she needs a vagina. And so this because idea, we can, how can we, how can we conceive of female um, motivation and interest right. without uh, some kind of sexual motivation? I mean, and actually yep. a friend of mine who's a, who's, who is in Hollywood was saying that she's heard that exact conversation. Like I obviously made it up, but she said that ex she's heard that exact conversation. How are we going to give this character drive without sex? And you know, it's amazing that we like can't conceive of female personhood, you know, without that. Yeah, again, I mean, it's one of the reasons yeah. the book is subversive. Like, I, I love that. I mean, I love that part of it. And I think there are like a lot of, and, it, and it's great for women to have a healthy sex drive, obviously. Oh, but there so, are a yeah. lot, there are a lot of women who don't, and that's okay. Like, I think that's what fiction you know? gives you a space to do is to say, what if? What would it be like um, if? Um, if what would it be like to be immune to this entire force field, um, right? Of of um, I guess like like corporate and commercial and whatever desires that are being like used to manipulate. What if and to define us? Like what if I had absolutely? You know, what if I could make myself immune to this? Immune to you know? And I think um, I think that. Penelope, you know, and actually I, I like lived that way for a long time, to be honest. Like, um, I, I came into like thinking of myself as, but I think because I was a funny woman for so long, I got put in the friend zone by everyone forever and ever. Um, and then one day that like changed in my twenties, which was pretty crazy, but anyway, um, but I think that like being a funny woman, like kind of it desexualizes you or it has for me anyway. And so I kind of did live in that, in that way for a long time and I loved it it did give me freedom. It like when everyone was trying to like hook up with people in college, I was like reading plays and doing comedy and having like an amazing time and like just exploring my own mind. And it was great. Um, so I think like a certain amount of shelter from that is great that on the other hand, I'm no fool. Like desire is also wonderful and part of intellectuality and part of mm -hmm. selfhood. But the question is how to do it on your own terms and how to have it yep. mean something to you without compromising yourself. And you know, I don't have the answers, but it's certainly something that I think a lot about. And actually my book that I just finished is literally about a super horny 19 year old. So okay, perfect. Tell it. Can you tell, tell us about we it? We are desperate. We are desperate. I mean, we need I, it. Okay. Uh, there's very important parts of it that I can't tell you only because okay. only what you like, have can. not figured out how to describe it yet because it's so okay. insane. Yes. So, Later, when you look back on this, you're going to be like, oh, she like gave us like, the time, like she forgot to like tell us the whole point. We'll but know, we'll know what you're talking about. You'll what, know what I'm talking about. We'll be like, hey, Julia. Out. Hey, Julia, we know, no. We know, we get it. We get why you couldn't tell us the title and you couldn't tell us the whole. <laughs> All right, device. tell us, anyway. tell us what you can. 
what it so I'll tell you that it's about a group of students um, of medieval art and architecture who are in Ooh. France on a study abroad trip. And the the main character is a 19 year old who kind of like misinterprets everything she's learning about religion. I mean, misinterpret just basically <laughs> like there's so much extra like surplus, like aesthetic surplus and sensory surplus in medieval art and architecture that she kind of just gets really turned on. <laughs> like, <laughs> all of these messages in religious art and and like Christianity and all these stories of, like early Christianity and saints and all this stuff. So it's about, um, yeah, it, but it's about a lot more than that. But that's like the meat of the book takes place in this um, study abroad program where this young woman is um, very, very horny for her teacher. Love oh my it. God, I love it so I much. Love it. Yes. I can't wait. But don't worry, there's more to it. It's crazy. But yeah. I believe that and I can't and wait. It's really funny. It's really, really funny. Like I still laugh out loud reading certain lines. And it's got a kind of like ensemble cast of students that are all like, I love them. And I've lived with them this whole past year. You know, they've lived in my head hardcore. I'm like barely present to my children. They're like, mommy, your eyes are dead. <laughs> and I'm like, that's because I'm in my head with my hilarious <laughs> friends. Um so yeah, when, no, it's great. What's the timeline on this? Well, I mean, I don't know. So basically I'm just like wrapping it up now and hopefully sell it to my publisher if they don't want it, someone else. And so hopefully (laughs) we'll publish it. (laughs) Somebody will, it'll come out. You can, you can threaten them be like, dog, your books can buy this. If you (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Guess what? We'll be like, here is our, (laughs) Um, yeah, the I don't know. Hopefully, well, yeah, in the new year, I hope it'll 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 be a sale, and we can get it moving and get it out there because I really am so. It's it's a really crazy thing to spend an entire year with make believe friends, you know, like and have no one read it. Like I'm literally just sending early drafts to like my first like friend readers now to get like some feedback, you know. I mean, my agents read it, but like, um, it's insane. Like there's a very high possibility that you know you never know. You never know. What if you spent a year on something alone in your room and then and somebody trashes it? Yeah. No, yeah. And they were just like, whoa, man, like <laughs> what did you do? Yeah. Like, whoa. And also, like, maybe like you're gross and like maybe you're just like a weird horny housewife and like no one can get down with this. But I I think it's good. I, I stand by it. I it think- sounds good. It's a guaranteed home run. Um, you may not be able to tell us the story of uh, this title, but I was curious just retroactively. American Mermaid, is it a reference to American Psycho? The title? No, interesting. I always think of that. Like, I'm always like, I always feel like there's these, you know, the cover. I always, when I hold up the book, I'm like, the cover is one thing the book is another. And I always think of like this kind of like crazy ass shit happening behind the scenes. And I think of American Psycho. I don't know why. I, that's my reference. You know what? Uh, I've actually never read American Psycho. <laughs> yeah, I told you, I'm not like a fiction reader. It's weird. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I haven't read it either. Oh, really? Interesting. It's so many people, uh, p- people in France are obsessed with that book. It was a huge hit here. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe that's why they all think I'm psycho. <laughs> She's an American. She's walking through the village laughing at herself. Yeah, yeah that, it all connects. Oh my God. <laughs> She's actually a big murderer. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's what's going on. Do they, do they, like, how do you land in France? Like, obviously the other school moms might be a little interesting, but like, how does your uh, brash American persona land there? Oh, my, first of all, my French persona is like so meek and apologetic. And like, I don't, I, they all, and I don't even try to make jokes and they're like, oh, la clown. Like they all think I'm a little clown, but I think it's just because my face moves a lot when I talk. They are, they treat me like I'm like in this really condescending way. Like I'm just like a sweet, cute little mm. Pierrot, like a little circus clown. And it's fine. It totally works for me. I have a lot of international friends. It's great. But um, I think the thing that uh, has really bit surprised me here actually is the way that be, being a writer in English like really works because I don't use any like I don't spend my English do you know mm-hmm. what I mean like yeah, I, yeah when I sit down at my desk in the morning I haven't said a word in English and it's all fresh and like you know so I only oh, that's only, so like, cool it's really cool and I never thought about maybe at some point I'll start to need to be back in touch with like colloquial English or something weird will happen to me. But if you think about it, a lot of English language writers have lived abroad. And I wonder whether it has to do with this way in which it really is concentrated in your creative life and you don't spill it like going shopping or like talking, yeah, gabbing to friends or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I do speak in English to my kids, so fine, but I don't know. When did you become bilingual? Like when did you pick up French? Well, I moved here in high school for a year and then okay. because my PhD was a French subject, I came back to it. So it's been, it's been a long time. Um, is your, yeah, the is American your last is actually, name French? No, it's German. German. Cause it's I, like I see it and I'm like, long bien. Like, do people try <laughs> yeah. and say that? Yes. All the French people, <laughs> but they're wrong. Je l'ai long bien. Um, <laughs> it's a weird <laughs> Uh, no, yeah, it, means, it means long legs in German or, or one long leg either way. Oh my God. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh. It's secretly sexy, but not actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, America, American mermaid is being translated, has been translated into French and is coming out here. Yes. I can't yes, wait to and, see the French cover. Oh, I know. And it's coming out with this really great French publisher who's famous for beautiful books. So I don't know, but I had these amazing reports with the translator and she's like, she was trying to find the right word for poon or like, can you ask that? <laughs> what is the right word for poon? I think we came up with like fafoon or like, yeah, I forget, like something, some like childish. Yeah. I think it's like fafoon or something. Really, really. Um, some, but I had to describe to her like she, what there was another one. It was like, God jizz or something. I forget where we had all these back and forths. <laughs> Where um, I was like, okay, so what this means is you, you would say this like chode. I was like, a chode is technically a short, fat cock. However, you would use it colloquially when referring to a sort of harmlessly idiotic man. Or, you know, like I had to break down. I was writing this like urban dictionary for her so that she could find the appropriate equivalent in French. It was the best email exchange. I loved it. That's awesome. Amazing translation work that you are doing for the world. Thank you. Yeah, we need that. When you, uh, are you going to, when you have the French edition, going to go to school and be like, hey, mom, Dick, do you know who I am? Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if mom, Dick would appreciate it. Mom, Dick values different (laughs) things than I do. But But it's true. Deep down, do you know who I am? really want is mom, Dick's approval. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Final verse. We all need mom, Dick's approval. Mom, Dick, why won't you love me? I don't know. Validate me. Validate me. Yeah. 
Um, we would just like to extend a formal invitation to visit Dog-Eared Books when the yet-to-be-named hypersexual, <laughs> religiously oriented book yes. <laughs> comes out. We are huge fans. Um, and so no pressure, but you know, oh, you've been to yes. Chicago. You can find Iowa say. unless you yes. end up in Ohio. <laughs> You know what? <laughs> Who would ever mistake Iowa and Ohio? Who would do that? They're very, very different. Um, yeah, I, uh, you guys are, because I don't have one, you're my local bookstore. You're yes! my local bookstore. language bookstore, you know? Yeah. Love um, it. Although, got to give a shout out to Unabridged in Chicago because they're also my people. They um, are cool. Yeah. yeah. They're really nice. We have um, been. Yeah. yeah. You can hit them up and then we'll even drive to Chicago and ferry you to Iowa and just enjoy your nonsensical, crazy hilariousness on the drive. It'll be perfect. Also, if you ever want to come to Paris. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> yes. I mean, I cannot think of a Sorry. single professional reason for you to come here. Except you I can. can. We'll be like, we're going to go visit some I Paris can. bookstores. I know you did a bookstore crawl in New York. Yeah. I mean, no, we've literally talked about this. I know we've literally talked about this. Rachel has said as much because Rachel comes with us on many and she's like, oh, we could go to Paris. And I'm like, yeah, Shakespeare and company. So, you know, you never know. There's literally one bookstore for you to visit. So that's great. <laughs> but it's get very on that plane. storied. I've read the, the very famous bookstore. Yeah, it is. And they do get a lot of good authors coming through and like all these international drifters like to come there and like meet people and hook up. It's a whole scene. That's very cool. Oh, cool. You guys are like, mm, no, thank you. No, I mean, I'm I would not. go just to hang out with you. Same. <laughs> well, that's a guaranteed good time. I mean, I'm a little. Yeah. <laughs> it is. You have so much fun. I'd be like, please. You'll be like, please I was like, leave me alone. We're preparing for this podcast. And I'm like, can we ask Julia if she'll be our best friend? <laughs> Done. Sold. I, yes. As I said, I, we're all best friends now. So I don't have enough friends. <laughs> Why do you think I listen to your podcast all the time? Because in my head, <laughs> I like living, I love, I love the like communion and community and like conversation around books. And I've learned so much from you guys, actually, if I can, before we end, I thank you so much for like, all the book recommendations and all the knowledge and like helping me understand what it's like to sell books and all of it. Like, I just think what you do is so awesome. Even in the last app that aired where you were doing the Q and a, and you talked about like the research oh that goes into, you know, like put it, putting a bookstore together and making it work and stuff. Like, I just think it's so awesome. Like, I just think the work you do is, as I said, American mermaid, like wouldn't find its readers if it weren't for you. Um, we're just holding my- every book to your standard. <laughs> I'm not even joking. It's like, does it, is it American Mermaid level? So, oh my God. Well, when well, we were yeah. talking to when we were talking to our rep about the new cover, the paperback cover, he was saying we really wanted to give it an indie bookstore type of cover because this is an indie bookstore book, and mm-hmm. we were like, yeah, we see it. Like, it's a, it's so a really cool cover. To that, listeners, we're going to sell a million paperback covers um, editions of this book. We love it so much. It will be a mainstay for all the years that Dogger Books exists. It will never leave our shelves. Oh, thank you guys. It really means a lot to me. And thank you to people who've read it and uh, and loved it and been kind about it. Okay. Uh, so as you know, keep the champagne flowing. Books going. Yes. <laughs> Cheers. 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 See you guys soon. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Popping Off with Dog-Eared Books. Be sure to like, subscribe, and comment if you enjoyed this. And if you know of someone we should interview on a future Popping Off, DM us in our social media.